Listener supported. WNYC Studios. That is a live picture, and obviously a major fire in a large building in the South Bronx region of New York City. 1977, Yankee Stadium, Game 2 of the World Series, and the whole world is watching. My goodness, that's a huge place. That's the very area where President Carter trod just a few days ago. The moment became iconic, a metaphor for Gotham's just total collapse. The 70s had been a long, hard decade. And there was crime, really scary crime. The murder rate had doubled, and there was a serial killer on the loose. Good evening. David Berkowitz, 24 years old, a postal worker, walked out of his Yonkers apartment last night, turned the ignition key in his car, and found himself surrounded by police. Well, he said, you got me. Police say those words ended the biggest manhunt in New York City history with the capture of Son of Sam. People were freaked out, and the cops weren't helping. In 1975, a group of disgruntled officers circulated a so-called survival guide to people landing at the airport. It had a picture of the Grim Reaper on the cover, underneath the words, Welcome to Fear City. It offered nine tips for making it out alive. Don't go out after 6 p.m., don't leave Manhattan, and probably the most resonant, avoid the subway. And in the middle of all of this chaos and fear, a 15-year-old boy from Harlem went on a terrifying subway rampage that pushed New Yorkers past their limits. They sent me to a place that was run by jailbirds. You know what I'd done? When I got back out into the community, I, I tried to worse a crime, what they had told me what they'd done. Then I got into more trouble. Willie Boskett. His crimes changed everything for kids in criminal justice. The political reaction was swift and extreme, and it ricocheted through states around the country. Remember Z, the young man we introduced in the first two episodes? To understand why Z and thousands of youth like him face adult criminal charges today, we're going to look back at Willie Boskett, at his childhood, his extreme and atypical violence, and at the specific challenge he presented to the juvenile justice system. He was like just a bright, shiny penny to meet. But that had a flip side. So he was a child that one would hope could be reached because he was obviously so intelligent. I'm Kai Wright, and in this episode of Caught, producer Kari Pitkin begins the story in 1978. It's a late afternoon on a subway hurtling through Harlem. The train's not crowded. One of the passengers, a middle-aged guy named Noel Perez, has fallen asleep. He's wearing pink sunglasses, and on his wrist is a big gold digital watch. As the subway travels north, the car empties out. And Noel, still sleeping, is unaware that it's just him and a 15-year-old boy, Willie Boskett. The subway becomes a real object of fascination to Willie. It was where he could go to see life and have adventure. Journalist Fox Butterfield wrote All God's Children, a book about Willie. It was sort of his Wild West. In fact, Willie had recently bought a gun and a holster, which he now has strapped to his hip. He takes out the gun and walks over to Noel. Willie starts to slip his watch off, but Noel stirs. And Willie raises the gun and shoots Noel in the eye. And then, just to make sure he's dead... Willie shot him a second time in the temple. 
Over the next 10 days, Willie, sometimes along with his cousin, preyed on other subway riders, robbing and shooting and causing mayhem on the trains. He shot a maintenance worker in the back and murdered a second train passenger. After that second murder, the transit police identified Willie as a suspect. Cops nabbed two tough kids and two slains on the IRT. Two youths aged 15 and 17 described by police as real tough guys were arrested yesterday for the late Once he was arrested and charged, it seemed like a story that would make some big headlines and then just fade away. But at that moment, these murders and Willie Boskett himself became a tipping point for juvenile justice that changed sentencing in New York. And the formula for that change? Fear plus politics. A government that does not protect people against violence is a government that fails its very justification for existence. New York's Democratic governor, Hugh Carey, had come into office promising that he'd help people feel safe. We must act so that every policeman on the beat, every citizen on the street, knows that he is not alone when his life or safety is threatened. Three years after that speech, Kerry was running for re-election. He was a liberal, and his Republican opponents started calling him soft on crime. Kerry had recently vetoed a bill reinstating the death penalty, an extremely politically unpopular move. And right in the middle of all of that came the Willie Boskett case. Willie was tried in family court. Remember, he was 15. And the most he could face was five years for two execution-style murders. I think he was the most violent offender that I had ever come across in 25 years as a prosecutor. Robert Silbering prosecuted Willie. I did not think that he could be rehabilitated. In all my experience, I think that there are certain cases where for the protection of society, an individual has to be warehoused. I thought he was one of those. But that wasn't an option. The facts looked terrible for the governor. Two days after Willie was sentenced, Kerry flew to Rochester, New York, for a campaign event. On the plane, he read in the Daily News an article written by reporter Neil Hirschfeld. He's 15, and he likes to kill because it's fun. Killing, Willie Boskett tells the people close to him, is fun. And he has killed two men. Hirschfeld wrote that Willie had been in detention before he went on his shooting spree. Willie was released against the recommendation of several staff members. Learning that, the governor was irate. This case has me outraged. I am aroused. I feel that it points up the failure of the criminal justice system that I've been talking about for three and a half years. And then Kerry announced at a press conference he was going to change the law. As far as sentencing is concerned, as a practical matter, if this person is mentally unfit to be in society, the person will stay within secure lockup for life. The Republicans have gone home. I'm going to bring them back to tend to this kind of case. I'm going to choose a date when I know they'll be there and they'll have no excuse not to come back and pass the crime laws that I want for this state. New York State changed its law and would now treat kids as adults. You know, an enormous flip-flop from more than a century of judicial precedent. Hugh Carey got his law. 
The Juvenile Offender Act of 1978 meant kids as young as 13 and 14 years old would be tried in adult criminal court, at least when they were charged with 14 specific crimes. And Kerry, he won his re-election. So to put this in context, I'm here with lawyer Dwayne Betts, who's been helping me think through these cases that we're covering. And Dwayne, you know, it wasn't just New York. The reaction to Willie ricocheted all the way across the country as almost every state passed similar legislation. And it seems to me that means that we have built this system around the furthest outlier. Right. So I think that's both true and false. The false part is that it lends us to believe that before Willie, we weren't sending juveniles to prison with adults. And in fact, that's just a part of our history. We have frequently been sending juveniles to prison with adults. The difference is that it became common after Willie Bosque's crimes. The difference is that legislators across the country decided that we no longer needed to think about children as individuals, but instead we should think about them as a class of young people who should be treated with the same kind of harshness and severity that is usually reserved for adults who commit crimes. And and I think that leads to a system that is unable to not only differentiate between his crime and anybody else's, but is also unable to differentiate between the notion that many of the young people in the system will be returning home. Meaning, in fact, that all of them then also need some kind of help. And it seems like we also should be thinking about how we could have helped Willie Basket. We don't ask ourselves what amount of ruin is acceptable for somebody who we send to prison. And in fact, we take that question off the table based on how serious the crime is. So we don't even wonder who Willie Basket is today. Remember, those laws were passed when he was 15, 16 years old. Nobody even imagined who Willie Basket would be when he got out of prison after that first stretch. So what did happen to Willie Bosque? Well, Willie got out at 21 years old after serving those five and a half years. And he was not sentenced under the Willie Bosque law, which is what it came to be known as. And very quickly after he got out, he was arrested on an attempted armed robbery charge. Producer Kari Pitkin picks it up from here. Once Willie went back to prison in his 20s, if you can imagine, he was even more destructive and violent. Four years into that sentence, he stabbed a guard and got sentenced to an additional 25 years to life. He's 55 now, and almost no one visits him. His family has moved out of state. But back when they lived in New York, they used to go up regularly. You know, we get up at 5, 4 in the morning, get to the bus station around 6. We'd arrive about 7.30. It's like an hour and a half, two hours away. This is his niece, Danielle. When she was a kid, she used to go visit Willie with his mom, who also raised her. And then we have to go through a long hallway. And then once we go past there, we would go upstairs a little bit further. And then his was like through a secondary cell after the special housing unit. And then through the, another little block. And then once we get through that gate, he was behind another gate. And then he would come out of that his room, which was locked, and then into the special cell they built for him visiting. And it was like a plexiglass with holes in it. But even the holes didn't match up so he could hear, but he could never be able to stick anything through the glass if he wanted to. You heard that right. The Department of Correction built a plexiglass cell just for Willie. 
Through the plexiglass, Willie taught Danielle to read and write and the names of the 206 bones in the human body. We used to play Scrabble, so I would pick his letters and put them on the thing for him. And then I would put them on mine. And you would just go back and forth playing Scrabble that way? Yeah. And I love Scrabble. Like, I actually gamble playing Scrabble some days. (laughs) And I always win. (laughs) But I remember, you know, when it was time to leave, I didn't want to leave a lot of times. I just wanted to stay. He just, he was like my dad. He tried, like, he just never had a chance. And it's unfair, because it's a life, like, gone. And I'm not saying, you know, he didn't do bad things. It's just that, unfortunately, the system failed him. I asked Danielle what she thought about the law created after the murders. I think that changing the laws to um, have juveniles charged as an adult is somewhat necessary because they are children that are incorrigible. So, you know, for the first murder... There needed to be a system to implement that because you have to kind of wonder what kind of human being as a child can stomach a murder. I can stomach to watch it on TV and it's fake. So something is wrong. Like there are signs and we've gotten, society has been, and it's even worse, has gotten so hard that when we see that it's like, oh, this person is terrible. We judge them. We don't say something is wrong. What do we do to fix it? I hope that you got my messages about when I was coming and everything. I, I did. I, I also did. met up with Willie's sister, Safi. Because this phone do, do what it want to do. You might send a text today, I might get it two days later. Safi's two years younger than Willie. What do you about, remember about when Willie first started getting in real trouble? Well, actually, what I remember is that he needed help. Like, it could have been different from the rip before he ever got in trouble when my mother asked the justice system to help her. And they told her if she beated him or chastised him, that they would lock her up and take him away. So, and she constantly, she went to court back and forth, family court, and she constantly asked, like, to put him somewhere so he could get help, and they didn't. And now, as we all see, how his life turned out. It did seem like they didn't really know how to help, or it failed in some way. They never even tried to medicate him or nothing. I mean, he was going to school throwing chairs and stuff out the windows at people and stuff like that. I mean, way before he ever got into trouble. That should have sent up a warning or alarm should have went off right then. When you don't understand what or where it's coming from, then that makes the issue even worse. So where was all this rage coming from in such a young kid? The first thing you should know about Willie's life is that it was shaped by violence even before he was born. When Willie was very young, he didn't know anything about his father. His mother uh, made up a story that his father was in the military. Fox says Willie learned the truth about his dad when he was around six years old. He was in his grandmother's apartment, and he saw a picture of a man wearing pants that looked like part of some uniform. And he was lifting weights. And Willie said, who's that? And his grandmother told him, that's your father. It sent this chill down his spine. I mean, it excited him. And he said, well, what's he doing? Where is he? And she said, he's in prison. 
And Willie said, what's he in prison for? And she told him that he murdered two men. And to Willie, who was growing up on the streets of Harlem, that was actually a good thing because it showed that his father was very tough. Tough is one way to describe Butch. Willie's father was sent to prison in Wisconsin for murdering two men during a botched robbery. Willie's mom, Laura, was pregnant with Willie at the time. Laura? Miss Laura? I'm Kari. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? I'm okay. She's in her mid-70s now, and she's forgotten a lot of the details about Willie's childhood, but not his connection to Butch. Exactly he looked like his father. He was tall, good-looking, nicely built, and mean. Willie's sister said everybody saw the resemblance. He's a, like, a dynamic twin of his father, and it's, it's in the blood. It's, I mean, I tell you it's in the blood. I mean, it's literally, literally in the blood. Safi's probably right, although we can't say exactly what was wrong with Willie. The latest research on psychopathy shows it's a highly heritable disorder. There is a strong genetic link. Antisocial behavior tends to show up young, happening at home and at school. Like when Willie was around eight or nine, he attacked Safi for tattling on him in front of their friend. He was like, I'm going to shut her mouth once and for all. And he ran in the kitchen and got the long cooking utensil. And he pulled her over. She was trying, she was struggling. She was fighting with him, trying to get away. And he held her down, held her mouth open, and he stuck the fork down her throat. By the time he was in second grade, Willie had broken into a storeroom at school and thrown an old typewriter out the window. It almost hit a pregnant teacher who was walking by three floors down. The school told his mom to take him to the children's psychiatric ward at Bellevue. The doctor who evaluated him called him the saddest little boy she had ever seen. Along with his DNA, Willie also had another challenge stacked against him. He was growing up on a violent block during one of the most violent decades in New York City. We are standing on the corner of 114th Street and Lenox Avenue, which is also known as Malcolm X Boulevard. And this is where um, my stomping grounds, where I grew up at. I walked with Willie's childhood friend to the block they grew up on. So what floor was uh, Willie's family on? Right there on the first floor, with this um, air conditioner in, right here in this building. And my building was on this side. It's the first time she's been back since she moved away when she was a teenager. And how much time did you spend over there? All the time, every day. We was over there sitting on the stoop. Oh, man, this just bring back so many memories. We are the corporates, the mighty corporates. We scratch people. The corporates. That was the name of her girl gang on 114th Street. Down St. Nicholas every night. The mighty corporates are ready to fight. She says the kids on the block had a lot of fun playing double dutch and tag. Hot peas and butter, come and get your supper. But they also saw people murdered running inside when they heard gunshots. We actually seen it and lived through it. We actually dodged bullets. As we're about to leave, she wonders about Willie. And how things could turn for anybody. We never know what really sparked 
what was that light of match to turn him into that fire? We would never know, but I miss him. So here's another match on that fire. Around the time he was nine, something terrible happened to Willie. His paternal grandfather, who had just gotten out of Rikers jail for raping a young boy, began having Willie come over on the weekends. Willie told Fox Butterfield that his grandfather raped him four different times. How this particular violation shaped Willie, I don't know. But it's true that kids who become violent and wind up in juvenile detention are much more likely than other kids to have been victims of all kinds of abuse, physical, emotional, and sexual. As an adult, when Willie told Fox about the rapes, he was completely matter-of-fact. He didn't see anything unusual about it. It was just something that happened in his life. Willie needed help. And so this sad, violent child began to come into contact with the system. And Willie stood out right away. First of all, he broke almost every rule he encountered. Like when he was nine years old, he wound up in family court for pickpocketing and skipping school. As Fox wrote in his book, the judge told Willie he was becoming quite a problem. That roused Willie. You're a lying motherfucker, he told the judge. You can go fuck yourself. And I don't need no motherfucking white lawyer neither. Here's the other thing that stood out about Willie. He was very smart. Spending any time with him at all, you knew that he was brilliant. Over and over again, it's his intelligence that many people who met Willie talked about. People thought he had something very special, extraordinary. He could charm anybody. He had that magic. And I don't know how many people said to me, people who had worked with him, social workers, psychiatrists, had remarked at the time when they were working with Willie, he could grow up and become president. This bright nine-year-old boy arrived at Wiltwick, the first institution he was ever sent away to. An enormous property, a wooded property, a lake. Carol Darden was an intake social worker at Wiltwick. It was just a beautiful setting and uh, with people who were really trying very hard to meet a need. Carol met Willie when he first arrived. He just seemed very sophisticated, uh, which ordinarily wouldn't set off alarms. It was just interesting. Most children coming into an intake interview are not that self-assured. They don't know where they are, what's going to happen next. He didn't seem to have those anxieties. And and how about Laura? How was she in that moment? You could tell that she needed Wiltwick at this point in her life. She felt he did. But I don't remember her feeling that this was hopeful. Wiltwick was known for having a top-notch therapeutic program run by idealistic 70s progressives. When Willie got there, the director of psychiatry was Dr. Joel Katz, and he had a program he called Total Commitment. They didn't medicate kids unless they were psychotic, and they didn't dump them. He felt the problem was that a lot of kids had grown up in families where the parents couldn't deal with them. And then when at school, the teachers couldn't deal with them, the principal couldn't deal with them, and they'd been in other juvenile institutions. The institutions couldn't deal with their behavior and so would 
transfer them on to somebody else. And what that did was it just created more and more intense and bigger feelings of grandiosity by acting out, by being aggressive and impulsive and horrible. They would be transferred on. It built up their egos. He did okay in the beginning. He was like just a bright, shiny penny to meet. But that had a flip side. So he was a child that one would hope could be reached because he was obviously so intelligent. And the what if of taking that intelligence and putting it toward positive expression. What if you could do that? At Wiltwick, Willie went to school consistently for the first time, and he learned to read and write. But he also fought brutally with other kids. The staff decided to try putting him on drugs, first Ritalin and then Thorazine. But his violence continued. He wrapped a phone cord around a nurse's neck and stole the school's van. And after all that, Wiltwick did what it promised not to do. It dumped Willie. Up next, what happens to a troubled kid once he's dumped? Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Willie spent the next three and a half years being placed in institutions and then getting dumped. Inside, there were staff who were just punching a clock, and there were people who were abusive. But there were also people who truly tried to help Willie. One woman even tried to adopt him. None of it seemed to make a difference. Until finally, when he was 14 years old, a family court judge ordered Willie to Brookwood, his last stay in detention before he committed the murders. While Wiltwick prided itself on offering everything from art therapy to trips to go horseback riding, Brookwood was a state facility, one of two high-security juvenile detention centers. There was no therapy, aside from some group sessions. You know how I used to feel? I didn't care about nothing, man. That's actually Willie's voice. This is from Alan and Susan Raymond's documentary film, Bad Boys. Willie, right? Being a staff one day, all the money coming in, so that's why I'm going to follow them and be like them. That's why mm-hmm. I don't care. Willie, the thing is I this. I don't mind following nobody. Willie, the thing is this. Everybody and the staff didn't have a lot of training. But still, in New York in the mid-1970s, the state was reforming the system. And Brookwood's director was committed to that, trying to get kids back into the community, doing away with the more punitive approaches. They were also trying something new with Willie. Here's Sylvia Honig. She was a social worker at Brookwood. All the other boys had to go to school, but Willie was given a special job. Even though he was 14, he did not have to go to school. I'd be on my own. If I feel like uh, the grass across the road need to be cut, I don't have to tell nobody where I'm going. I just go cut the grass. I was over there today driving a uh, riding lawnmower. I didn't tell nobody where I was going. You know, I feel free. 
Even though I'm locked up, I feel free. He did have some special privileges. He worked in the shop and got to wear a hard hat and had a tool belt. Sylvia believed Brookwood's director, Tom Pottenberg, who was 6'8", was actually afraid of 14-year-old Willie. He didn't like to be alone with Willie, and Willie seemed to be calling the shots. Pottenberg started to push to have Willie released to a halfway house. But Sylvia was alarmed, so she wrote a letter to the head of the state's division for youth, saying Willie was still too dangerous to be let go. In a decision that eventually wound up in the Daily News, the state did not stop Willie's release. Do you think this time you're going to stay out for good? Yeah. Because, see, I, you know, this is my second time at Brookwood. And uh, I feel, you know, like since I've been working downstairs, you know, with maintenance, I, you know, learned a lot. Uh, you know, I realize now, you know, that uh, you have to, you know, be a man sometimes. You know, you got to grow up. Willie charmed the filmmakers. How long do you have to stay here before you can go home? Well, I suppose to get released Monday. Oh, soon. Right. Is that uh, for good? You're going to go home? Yeah. yeah. Soon after that interview, the Raymonds were filming in a hallway, and Willie ran at them, screaming, Don't do that! And he smashed the camera in Alan's face, giving him a black eye. Oh, shit. Willie was released in September 1977, unchanged, perhaps even more violent, and fantasizing about what it would be like to murder someone. He decides he really wants to shoot somebody so he can be like his father. And he quite deliberately, when he pulls the trigger, he wants the feeling of what is it like to shoot and kill somebody. Which is what he did on a subway in Harlem, just six months after being sent home. Because we're in the middle of nowhere and there are no cell towers. Yeah. My coworker right, Sophia so. and I recently drove five and a half hours to visit Willie in upstate New York. He has spent the last 29 years in solitary confinement. I wasn't feeling nervous, but now that we're actually here, I definitely feel nervous because he doesn't know we're coming to visit him and then to randomly get, oh, you got a visitor. Yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. I didn't notify the Department of Corrections we were going because we weren't sure if they'd let us speak with him. So we showed up, hoping he'd agree to see us. And now we're in the parking lot, about to go in to see Willie Boskett. Once we made it through the various levels of security and metal detectors and locked gates, we walked through the long visiting hall. It was lively, with bright fluorescent lighting, little kids working on coloring books. One couple was standing up and making out across the table. Where we met Willie was in the no-contact section. We were the only ones there. So we sat in small, adjoining plexiglass rooms. And for an hour, we sat and talked with Willie. We couldn't record him, but once we got back to the car, we debriefed. What was your impression? I guess my first impression was... He was this, like, friendly-looking middle-aged man. You know, he had the receding hairline and the, like, old man glasses, the bifocals. I just didn't know from descriptions of what other people had said about visiting him that he was sort of more shut down. I mean, he did seem emotionally shut down, but 
he was ready to engage. He obviously was desperate for connection, I thought. Yeah, I mean, he was funny and smart because it, it sounds like he has access to newspapers and stuff. I don't know if he, that stuff registers for him. He said the president and he met Reagan. I'm not really sure how much he lives in the present um, in terms of like the, the outside world. Willie is so out of touch that I was the one who unwittingly wound up breaking the news that his older sister had died a few years ago. His family had passed along messages to relay to him. They're in North Carolina and haven't been able to visit in several years. His mom told me this. Time I think about him all the time and I still love him. Although mommy ain't got there to see him, mommy love him and think about him. When I described to Willie the messages from his family, he said he wanted them to forget him, that he didn't want to be a burden on their lives, and that he accepted the fact that he was, as he put it, incommunicado. So could it have been different for Willie? Fox Butterfield, who spent years researching and writing about Willie's life, said that it was almost as though it was too late for him as early as five years old. Which is a pretty dreadful thing to say because all of these different institutions were built on the premise that you could be saved from doing that. The people who created the juvenile court system were called child savers. Willie was one of those kids who was not going to be saved. But... A lot has changed since then in the understanding of how to address extreme violence in children. And although it's still early days, there is growing evidence that very early intervention can help. The focus is on building warm and positive relationships between the child and their parent or even their teachers, which can be tough because these kids don't necessarily respond in typical ways. Dr. Arielle Baskin-Somers is a research psychologist at Yale. A lot of it is doing in-session, typically about once a week, with the parent exercises that are going to model for the parent how to display warmth. So how to hug the child, when to hug the child, what your face looks like when it's warm versus when you think you're being warm, but it's actually, you know, you're being quite dismissive. And so we asked her, do most kids who need this kind of early intervention get it? She said, no. Coming up, another teenager facing a long prison sentence, but who might actually get the help he needs, thanks to a new reform program. It's hard to hear, you know, somebody say five years in jail. That's what's going to happen. I know that for a fact, because given my life... The five years? Yeah, that's... No, don't even... No, that's going to happen. That's next on Caught. Caught is a production of WNYC Studios and the narrative unit of WNYC News. This episode was reported by Kari Pitkin. We had additional reporting from Caitlin Pierce. Dwayne Betts is a consultant on the podcast. Special thanks to Fox Butterfield for his support. If you want to learn more about Willie Boskett and his family, check out his book, All God's Children. Thanks also to New York State Archives. The 1978 documentary Bad Boys was produced and directed by Alan and Susan Raymond and is a production of Video Verite. Casey Means is our technical director, and Hans Brown is our composer. Students Taja Graves-Parker, Alberto Lugo, and Sean Gary from Building Beats provided additional music. Our team of talented producers includes Rebecca Carroll, Jessica Miller, Sophia Polizakar, Courtney Stein, and Patricia Willens. Michelle Harris is our fact checker. Karen Frillman is our executive producer. And I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. Caught is supported in part by the Ann Levy Fund, the Margaret Newbart Foundation, 
the John and Gwynne Smart Family Foundation, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.